right, John chapter 7. Let's look at verses 14 to 24 this morning. As you turn in your Bibles there, I'd like to welcome Pastor Dave Cannon and Stephanie and family. Good to see you all. Pleasant surprise. Um, pastors know not to announce their visit before time because pastors know pastors would be given responsibility and said service that they were coming to. So way to go, Dave, for surprising us. And uh, anyways, great to see you guys. And I'm glad you're here with us today on this um, non-Seattle-like sunny Lord's Day. Has it been like that the last couple days? Uh, there was a lot of wedding showers here yesterday. It was appropriate that it rained all day, right? <laughs> Showering on the showers. So congratulations to you ladies and your wedding showers and Kathy and Nelson. Hope that was enjoyable. And family, welcome to Nelson's family today for coming all the way just for church. We appreciate that. And of course, Vince and Lizzie, soon, we mentioned that last week. And Courtney, you're just marrying the best, that's all I can say. <laughs> you knew that, right? Her... Her last name is soon to be Bess, so I just figured we'd remind her she's marrying the best. I know, dad jokes. Sorry, guys. Anyways, uh, it's an honor to um, celebrate these occasions with you folks, and thanks for your invitations to allow us to do that. And we have a lot of reasons to celebrate this morning, in addition to the foundational reasons of the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. Um, but uh, the Bernhardts have a new little boy in their home. And uh, praise God for the safe delivery of Andrew Sebastian. And um, those of you that know that recent history, um, we're just reminded of God's faithfulness here and, and so thankful for his faithfulness. And um, I, think, I think it's important for us to as we go to prayer here and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word just to remember our Christian friends in Nashville this morning um, the pastor of that church is a dear friend of some pastors of mine in the Nashville area and his nine-year-old daughter was was shot in that uh, school shooting uh, this week and so they're mourning the loss of their daughter and he's he's got to get up and preach God's word this morning and um, hopefully there's someone there to stand in for him. But if not, we want to pray for him and his church family uh, this morning as they mourn the loss of these little ones and these faculty and staff members that were needlessly, lives were needlessly taken this week. Um, but they don't mourn as the world mourns. They mourn with hope, but yet they're still mourning. And so let's pray for them this morning as we continue. Lord, this is your church. Our Savior is the head of this body, of this local body, and he remains the head of the church throughout the world and, and certainly in other locations like Nashville and Pray for these dear saints as they gather together on 
this day of worship. And uh, they approach you as their faithful creator, as they entrust their hearts to you and seek to continue to do good. And yet, Lord, they are fully aware that they are in desperate need of a fuller understanding of how capable your grace is to compel them to persevere and to know your comfort uh, in this hour and in these days following this tragedy. And we lift them up before you today that they would know the unique kind of comfort that's available to them that you offer that that comfort would pillow them during this time of agony and mourning. I pray, Lord, that they would know the influence of your people's prayers for them from all over the country. We pray, Lord, that they would know the encouragement of the Spirit who indwells each member of that church, who intercedes for them with groanings that they cannot utter. I lift up, Lord, the parents and the family of the shooter who also passed. Unexplainable grief and agony and sorrow is theirs for so many reasons. Shame. Shame that certainly they should not bear. But Lord, you know the state of their souls and you know the situation of their home omnisciently. I'm sure they grieve as Others grieve in their own unique way. I pray, Lord, that this tragedy would fall out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. As Paul tells us, is the design of suffering among God's people. I pray that Jesus Christ would be known as high and lifted up, that those who are without him, who are in agony, could look to him. as the Lord that calls them who are burdened and heavy laden to come to him so that they might have rest for their souls. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to minister to these folks in the days ahead, if you would allow it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. John chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 24 this morning. Last time we were together, did I say John 7, verses 14 to 24? Sorry about that. Uh, I know what I just heard was not murmuring and complaining, but deep concern. And I heard it as such, so thank you. Last time we were together, we mentioned that chapter 7 is really a chapter of assessments. If you've read it since last Sunday, uh, you've seen no fewer than eight different assessments made by individuals or groups of individuals. 
This chapter is quite noisy from that perspective. We know that John writes for the purpose of presenting Jesus as the Son of God so that people would believe in him and consequently have life through his name. And this chapter is full of statements and information presenting Jesus as divine authority. And when he steps into the room, so to speak, of this chapter, the noise quiets down and and when he speaks, people do listen. I believe it's important for us to remember that Jesus is about a half year away from being tortured for our sin at this particular point in our study of the Gospel of John. It's good to also remember that just six months behind us now was the feeding of the 5,000. In this particular passage, we're in the middle of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. We described this celebration in full last week. We're in the third week of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. This would be the month of Tishri, our October. We're in the third week of that month. We should recall the last time we were together that Jesus has a conversation with his own brothers For their own motivation, they asked Jesus to go up to the feast early or upon the first of the week with them. Jesus knew the religious leaders had murder planned for him. Jesus' brothers had what we believe to be the desire for Jesus to pick up the broken pieces of his brand that fell apart at the end of chapter 6, so to speak, and regain the massive following that walked away from him. Regardless, Jesus knew that going up at the beginning of the feast would be ultimately not the best thing. So his brothers go up, and indeed, they were ready to seize Jesus, but he was not with his brothers. Now we find ourselves in the middle of the week of the celebration at hand in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples find a not-so-popular way into the city and they're beginning to mix and mingle with the crowd the police detail so to speak that was ready to seize Jesus had been disbanded because they hadn't found him yet the city was still abuzz with conversation about Jesus and where he may be knowing full well that he is going to show up because he's fully obedient as a law keeper So let's read our text here this morning, beginning in verse 14. But when it was now in the middle of the feast, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will... He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. He turns to the religious leaders and says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law, and why do you want to kill me? 
The crowd answered him, not the religious leaders, but the crowds. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You see, Jesus knew, remember, the heart of the religious leaders and even the countrymen there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles had not had murderous thoughts yet, but the religious leaders did. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There's something to be recognized regarding Jesus' obedience here. I believe it's important for all of us to realize that Jesus did attend the feast. He is the perfect law keeper. He's compelled by the very divine nature that he has and that he is to obey the will of the Father. Yet that included his timely, not untimely death according to the Lord's plan. So he needed to enter the city wisely. His obedience included more than just attendance. Verse 14 tells us in the middle of the week, he went straight to the temple and he sat down and he began to teach. This was a natural place for Jesus to be. He's always desired to be about the will of his father and it included the revelation of his father's will from his own lips. You see, he's been interested in this since he was a little boy. Go back with me to Luke chapter 2, real quickly, where we find Jesus at the 12 year old year of his life. And you know the story here, don't you? It's the week of the celebrating the feast of the Passover, and it's concluded as parents are. On the way back, they realized that their minus, their little son, almost man-child Jesus, they scurry back to the city and they search for him for three days in the city. And this is the story of verses 41 to 50. And when they find him and they ask him, Verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them very calmly, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement that he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and men. So Jesus' parents had had him in good habit. It was an obedient Jewish family in participation of these weeks of celebration in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus always had that propensity to find his way to the, tabernacle, to the temple to, to learn of the rabbis. And earlier in those verses that we didn't have time to read this morning, uh, those men that he sat with 
old enough to be his father or grandfather, were amazed at his Q&A that he orchestrated himself at age 12. But regardless, in chapter 7, we find Jesus now in the temple, as was customary of rabbis. When they taught, they would sit down, showing a posture of knowledge and authority, and they would teach. Now, in addition to his obedience, we need to examine a bit of his teaching and his authority. When Jesus began, it seems there was just countrymen there listening to him. Over a while, religious leaders had heard grumbling that Jesus was now in the city and teaching in the temple, and they would have hurried there and mixed themselves among the crowd. After listening for a time and becoming more and more frustrated, their thoughts and emotions, heating up like a teapot, had reached a boiling point. And the religious leaders, noted here by the word the Jews, burst out and couldn't contain themselves anymore. The passage says that they were astonished. This simply means that they were surprised, amazed at his ability and audacity to teach in the temple for a number of reasons. Questions would naturally arise among these Jewish leaders. Who had Jesus been taught by? What rabbi did he follow? What school of thought had he received a diploma? He cites no references, and yet people are moved by his teaching, and the crowd continues to swell in number, pressing hard against one another, trying to listen to every word that comes from the mouth of the Logos of God himself. You see, if you were going to be a Jewish rabbi and you sat in the temple, there was a certain number of references that you had to cite to support your teaching. And if you didn't cite those references, you were thought of as one teaching for himself and from himself. You left yourself really indefensible. But what I want to recognize here as we continue is that thousands had gathered to see Jesus perform his miracles. Remember, we're just coming away from the zenith of his public following of his ministry there at the end of the Galilean period of his, of his walk on this earth. But we must always know that Jesus' words are no less powerful and influential than the signs he performed. Though the words of even the Old Testament prophets were words come from the Lord, Jesus is the very narration of God as God in flesh, and the nouns and verbs that fall from his lips is as if God was speaking to the listeners firsthand. And that in an omnipotent fashion. The religious leaders are so offended at the power and influence of his words that they need to cut him off. They need to cease his speaking. So they ask a question. How has he become learned having never become educated? So think about that. Jesus is speaking calmly, but certainly 
crowd continues to gather quietly and listen attentively. And a religious Jew shouts from among the crowd this question. So it's easily heard. Allow me to break down this question for you. It's pretty incredible. The religious leaders were clearly stating in the form of this question, these words, how can this man say anything that makes sense when he's never even learned the alphabet? That's what this phrase means. They're saying Jesus doesn't even know letters, let alone words. How can he speak with such authority and garner so much attention? Well, we all know this is a form of manipulation in speech, don't we? One may use to gain full attention for themselves while stripping attention from another. They'll just fully discredit the speaker by making an extreme and terminal statement. So they did. But Jesus' wisdom endured past their critical claim against him. Jesus knew that the crowd would have been familiar with Jewish customs of education of their children. All children would have been able to at least read in their language by the time they're 12. So the Jews' claim was just merely sensational speech to detract attention away from what the Lord was saying. The whole crowd would have been reminded by now that Jesus is no pragmatist. We learned that last week in verses 3 through 8 when his brothers tried to get him up to Jerusalem to pick back up on his popularity brand again. They realized afresh and anew that Jesus, who sought to persuade them by sign, now also desired to equally persuade them by words. And the people were equally influenced. So Jesus continued to teach, knowing the hearts of the opposition were just full of hatred. A famous author once said this, we cannot possibly adjust to please fanatics. And it is degrading to make such an attempt. So Jesus doesn't seek to placate or answer the fanatics in a pragmatic way. He just continues. So verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but him who has sent me. In one statement, Jesus proclaims, all of the reference he needed. He's been educated. He's fully aware of the knowledge of God and his will. He's the embodiment of it. But my friends, the humility of Jesus here, again, uh, is to be noted because it's divine. While he would garner all of the glory for himself, and he could have, he set glory for himself aside and desired for his father to have it all. Verse 18, what does it say? He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus clearly states that the religious leader whose speech is loaded with educational reference and particular detail to such, teaches to gain his own glory, his own fame, 
But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there's no unrighteousness in him. With one statement layered with truth, Jesus states his subordination to God while claiming as the Son equal divine nature, purity, and authority. You see, my friends, as D.A. Carson says in his commentary, Jesus is no self-invented upstart. He's God. He's the very narration of God in flesh. And yet he speaks on the will of the Father. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Rabbi Jesus, having been exclusively tutored to the Father, reveals that there's a moral dimension to his teaching here in this verse. He's done so in stating his nature and character already in verse 18, to be sure, and he's the same as the Father. He's, he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in his very personal way, Jesus reminds the listener in the temple that divine moral demands are placed upon them find those demands we go back up to verse 17 where jesus said if anyone is willing to do his will he will know the teaching whether it is from god or whether i speak for myself if anyone is willing to do his will this is the language of the appropriation of faith after one has seen their own sin while in the presence of jesus let me explain it requires knowledge to know the will of god that knowledge of God in Jesus is the demonstration of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And once that knowledge of the will of God is achieved by the demonstration of the love of God, there must be a willingness to do the will of God. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. Again, in one clear, concise, compelling statement, Jesus appeals to the lost state of religious belief. Not many present there in the temple were willing to do the will of God because they had not yet recognized the love of God who had been revealed as the knowledge of God in the person of Christ seated right before them, teaching in the temple. Are you with me? Knowledge, love, and obedience all aspects of the salvation experience faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god the embodiment of god is fully demonstrated for them in christ in both his signs and his words someone who truly surrenders their heart to the knowledge love in obedience of Christ is someone who will know whether Jesus is teaching for himself or on behalf of his father. Someone might say, well, how do you know this word's true? How do you know it's God's word? Well, a simple answer for us is what? Well, we know Jesus <laughs> and by faith in him and the demonstration of his love for us and sacrifice for us, We've been changed, and by faith, we now live in obedience to the revelation of God in this word. 
It's knowledge, obedience, and love. Love, knowledge, and obedience. I don't know that any one's more important than the other. But God in his grace, as we're taught in chapter 6, God in his love tutors us. He draws us, verse six, chapter 6 and verse 44, into himself. And this is what we know upon his drawing. So Jesus continues to speak with omniscient authority in verse 19, which we've already read. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Each religious leader would know the demands of the ceremonial, civil, and moral aspects of the law of Moses, especially the moral code, which we call the Ten Commandments, for those of you who are younger in the Lord in general. Jesus appeals to their unsafe state by calling them out as murderous religious leaders in the presence of their fellow countrymen. We've noted that many times, especially in chapters 5 through 7 and on into chapter 11, where the religious unbelief seeks to seize, imprison, and or kill Jesus. They're premeditatively prepared to slaughter him upon his entrance into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. As Jesus speaks in the temple in this moment, he, as the completely innocent, righteous Son of God, criticizes the leaders for knowing the law of Moses in their heads, but not in their hearts, because they're premeditatively seeking to murder an innocent man, and Moses wrote, thou shalt not, what? Kill. The Hebrew word for kill in Exodus 20 is the word that we would know for premeditated murder. A senseless taking of an innocent life. The crowd didn't fully know what Jesus did. That's why they say and ask him what they do in verse 20 answered you have a demon who seeks to kill you they didn't fully know just yet they weren't seeking to kill him remember the triumphal entries of coming in the near future and they're gonna wave him into the city with palm branches crying out hosanna but the religious leaders mindset towards jesus never changed and soon was caught by jesus own countrymen so what do we know in verses 21 to 24, Jesus takes a brief, deep dive into the recent past at the Passover a few months back to further qualify what he's saying here. He skillfully teaches the law, and in doing so, confronts the religious leaders' undoing of the law. We know from Moses and Jesus that it is good to do good on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, Jesus said, is for the man, and the man not for the Sabbath. So Jesus has recalled before these people his healing of the lame man who was lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. You remember that story back into chapter 5. Remember the Jews sought to kill him then because he did work on the Sabbath. But remember we told you the Jewish religious people of Jesus' time had added 39 extra applications and expectations of the law just for Sabbath just for the Sabbath day, let alone other aspects of the Mosaic law. But nonetheless, 
Jesus brings the memory of this sign. I did, at the end of verse 21, he says, I did one deed and you marvel. And then he starts to talk about circumcision and we already read that, so let's just kind of make some heads or tails about all this. So Jesus highlights then the Jewish tradition of circumcision as a means to convict their hearts of their hypocrisy. It was the tradition of the Jews to circumcise each male child on the eighth day after their birth. Jesus says here that the rite of circumcision wasn't even Mosaic, but was handed forward from the Jewish fathers to Moses who allowed it to become part of the law. Regardless, if the eighth day after a male child was born happened to be the Sabbath, that child would be circumcised on that Sabbath, no questions asked. That was an effort that would be unavoidable, an obligation unavoidable. And so Jesus says, in the latter part of verse 21, I did one deed and you marvel, and yet you never marvel at doing your own work of circumcision on the Sabbath, and yet you're still thinking me to be evil. The people now think of me to be a demon because they know now that I know you're seeking to kill me, and you're breaking the law because you're about to commit murder. So Jesus is confronting a lot of error in the knowledge the practice of these religious Jews when it comes to their own law, their own Mosaic law. So Jesus says what in verse 24? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I think you should stop and think about what you're thinking, about what you think to be know, you know to be true about the Mosaic law, and you should listen to my words. Don't lead these people into a mob scene based on what appears to be here that you have staged. But he asked them to do something. Open their hearts to discernment. Open their hearts to what the law of Moses really says. And open their hearts to the words <laughs> that he's speaking. Jesus certainly never intended any violence. Those who reject him and reject knowledge, love, and obedience that he offers in salvation, those are the ones who seek to unfortunately often present themselves in, in violent and malicious ways towards those who are lovers of Christ and and Christ is just really in person demonstrating that here in the temple. So that's what he's saying. You need to be people of knowledge, of love, and obedience. So you need to be people of salvation. You need to be people that discern who I am. You've seen the signs, you've been eyewitness of the miracles. And now you've heard my words, which are equally powerful. And Jesus is saying now, you need to discern for yourself that I am who I say I am. 
and I'm doing, I'm doing the will of my Father, and please bow your knee to Him as you understand my words. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we understand that Jesus is speaking very, very authoritatively here. He does so as the very narration of God. And, and though he's speaking on some very, very profound theological matters, it's beautiful how simple he makes the understanding of it for us. And for the people in that time in the temple listening to him, I, I would hope, I would pray first, and then I would hope that everyone here that has been involved with religion um, that doesn't have any problem including Jesus but does have a problem with his Jesus' exclusive claims to just discern properly this morning. Religion is just simply man-made. It's it's not of God. And I think we need to put a period at the end of that sentence. Religion can take Jesus and he's either not enough or they add to him. He's just never enough. So he has to be taken away from or in most cases added to. So he's often not known as the word of God explains him as he explains himself. But this morning, I hope you understand how patient he is because his own countrymen, his own rabbis that he's grown up under and familiar with that now seek to kill him, he, he has not one violent thought in his mind and yet he, he still has mercy on them and, and the way he speaks, it's, so much similar to his words on the cross when he said, Lord, forgive them because they really don't know what they're doing. For every religious person here that has been coming or maybe visiting this morning, I hope, I hope you understand that just a, an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is and, and maybe you've added nothing to him and taken nothing away from him, but you just know him in your mind hope you understand that that's not enough. To know Jesus just intellectually will compel you to continue to live on religiously. Jesus has already stated in John 3, except a man is, has a new spiritual beginning. Unless he's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless you own him exclusively for the forgiveness of your sins and you place your faith in him fully as the son of God you cannot have eternal life later on we're going to find out that Jesus is the door that leads to the father one of his seven great I am statements of this gospel I trust that you would enter into eternal life through him alone because he's enough. We're about to hear from two people that walk through that door, walk through 
Jesus to gain fellowship and reconciliation with the Father. And I trust everyone here has done that or would be compelled to do that by the Spirit of God before you leave today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the recording of that word by John, these gracious yet authoritative words of our Savior. I pray, Lord, that we would decide to, by your grace, not to remain in religious hypocrisy, but that we would know Jesus in a very personal and real way. In his name we pray. Amen.